0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org.
1: Just turn your attention very quickly to Impact coming up. We have some wonderful host homes that we're going to have, uh, uh, clubs in your backyards with Impact coming up with our our church. You've seen several videos now detailing what Impact is about. And uh, a couple years ago, we had this idea to go beyond the host home and go to some outreach areas in our community. So we started going to splash pads and parks and rec centers and government housing projects. And so at those locations, we need something called an outreach host, an adult presence at those clubs for our teenagers to be there with them, uh, provide water, snacks for the kids that show up at these clubs, and really provide an adult presence at those outreach locations. So here's a video showing you what the need is for outreach hosts for impact.
0: Hi, I'm Miles Moore, and this is my wife Jennifer Moore, uh, and we've been working out at Wayman's Manor with some uh, fellow friends for about two years.
2: Yeah, we felt called to, um, to to be an outreach host out at Wayman's, just like Miles said, because we'd been going out there, we'd been hanging out with the kids. We we knew the kids. We knew um, we started getting to know some of their parents, their aunts, their uncles, um, where they lived. Um, so it was an easy transition, easy, um, decision to be an outreach host. So during the week of Impact Club, um, an outreach host is responsible for getting the word out to the kids, to the families, making sure that they have the information, um, about that. We come and, bring popsicles and water, and we get to come play with the kids. Um, It's also really so great meeting the the teenagers that that get to do these clubs that are sharing the gospel with these kids, um, it's really great to see them come in and step in and, and love on the kids, and so just being able to be there and help them in any way that they need um, or take care of any, you know, any issues that come up, and also you know, parents will come up with the kids and getting to meet and, and visit with parents and, and just talk to them a little bit more while the teenagers are loving on the kids.
0: So last year, some of the real fun things that happened is, is that we got to meet a lot of the kids that were, were home for the summer at this apartment Complex for the first time, uh, and then just got to play with them, play football, play around. Um, they all heard the gospel through the different lessons uh, that came out, and then from that, they kept wanting us to come out. Um, we would bring them to the pool. We'd get some friends together, and then there'd be 20 kids from Women's Manor at a pool, Um, just kind of taking it over and and having just a great time all summer. And so that developed into a relationship all summer long that we're able to go and hang out with them, provide food. And and so that's one real big blessing that we had from it last year.
2: And one thing that really stands out is how much these kids really flock to the guy leaders. They really want to be around them. They want to hang out with them. They want to talk to them. Um, So each day after each of the lessons, um, there was a group of probably three or four kids that would go and want to sit and just talk and they would ask questions about the lessons that were shared, um, about the gospel, about Christ. Um, So it was really neat to just sort of sit back and get to observe these kids learning um, what the gospel is, who Christ is, what he's done, seeing the needs of, of so many others and really stepping outside of Our neighborhood, our community, um, sort of what feels even safe and comfortable for us has been really such a gift from the Lord um, to know what it really looks like to love and serve others well, um, how to step into lives, how to step into messy situations, and, um, and really just love them like Christ loves them.
1: So we'll need about 20 outreach hosts for Impact to happen this year. And if you want more information about that, there's a, a really cool booth out in the lobby. You can look at that and, and find out more information out about it out there in the lobby. So today we're starting a brand new series in the book of Hosea. And you might just want to turn to your table of contents for this one. We don't tend to know prophecy real well. In fact, if I were to ask you what your favorite books of the Bible are, you probably would say the Gospels or... Some of Paul's letters. If you go Old Testament, maybe you, it's, it's Proverbs or Psalms. For my high schoolers, it's definitely Song of Solomon. Um, I don't know why that is, but it is. Uh, so we're in Hosea, and most talks I've heard in the book of Hosea are done in a one-shot or two-shot deal. And we're going to span this thing out to six weeks and touch on all the aspects of Hosea's life and, and his uh, relationship with Gomer, his wife. And so each week we're looking at a different facet of God's love. And so today we focus on the, the foolish love of God for his people. But I want to give you the, the boring part first. Let's get the historical stuff out of the way, and then we'll move on to the next thing. Uh, but this is a picture of what Israel looked like at the time of Hosea. This is about 800 years before Christ, about 800 B.C. And after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom is split into two. Israel's divided into north and south. And I know it's hard for you to understand how a nation could be divided into north and south. But um, it does happen in some parts of the world. And uh, and the north is called Israel. The ten tribes in the north are called Israel. And the, the two tribes in the south are called Judah. And Hosea is mainly written to the northern kingdom, Israel. This is a time of peace and prosperity for the nation of Israel. And as often happens, prosperity leads to apathy, which then leads to idolatry. This has happened to the nation of Israel. So Israel turns away from God, they turn to idol worship, and they worshiped in particular the Canaanite god, Baal. This was the agricultural god, so the Aggies would have totally loved him. Um, So Baal worship consisted of a few things. Baal worship consisted of very simple, eating, drinking, and getting with prostitutes at the downtown temple. This is a summary of their religion. So finding new members would not have been difficult. This was not a hard sell. And so the Israelites get caught up in this cultic worship of of Baal, the agricultural god. This is the context in which Hosea is prophesying to the nation of Israel. So here's a quick summary of Hosea. God commands Hosea to marry someone who's going to cheat on him relentlessly. And why does God do this? God does this because... He wants to show Israel their unfaithfulness to him. And so he asked Hosea to do a a pretty crazy thing with his own life. Now, Hosea was a prophet. And if you know the Bible at all, you'll know that prophets often lived a lonely life. Usually didn't go well for the prophets. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet for good reason. And so prophecy was not just telling the future. Prophecy was telling the truth. Most of us think of, Prophecy being predicting the future. But most of the time, prophets would just tell the truth to the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, or even other nations. And we know truth tellers just aren't popular. They're not popular people. So prophets didn't just say hard things. They had to do some hard things. One example of that is Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 20, verses uh, 2 and 3. Here's what God asks of Isaiah. It says, At that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah the son of Amaz, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush. So I know it's kind of early, but in case you didn't catch what that verse just said God tells Isaiah to go be naked for 3 years as a sign against Egypt that Assyria was going to defeat Egypt and then leave Egypt just stripped and naked and bare. And you can imagine Isaiah maybe arguing a bit and asking, "Well, God, like can't we just tell them that? Can't we just preach a really good sermon and just tell Egypt what's going to happen to them?" But no, God wants them to go. He wants them to be a living example of something that is going to happen to the nation of Egypt. And so, we don't know how this played out with Isaiah. We don't know um, how this played out. Most scholars agree that he wasn't naked continuously for three years. I know that's where your mind probably was going, right? Um, but maybe it was just one day a week. Maybe it was naked Thursdays with Isaiah. I don't know how this whole thing worked out, but. Um, but we assume it wasn't this continuous thing. But either way, some prophets had to act out their prophecies in front of the people. And so Isaiah, he had, to, he had to get naked as a prophet. Now, as a pastor, I'm glad that's not in the job description. You're glad that's not in the job description either. So God asked prophets to do some pretty difficult, crazy things. And he asked Hosea to do some crazy things as well. And here's our question for today. Why would God ask this of Hosea? Why would God ask him to marry someone like this? I mean, why couldn't Hosea just preach some really good sermons? Why couldn't he do like a five-part series? Like a really good, powerful revival series. Why did he have to act this out in front of the people? What's God trying to do by having him act this out in front of the people? I mean, whatever happened to the idea that God loves you? It's a wonderful plan for your life. But here's the issue: is that God does love Hosea, but He also loves Israel, and Israel was steeped in idolatry. So we're going to look at Hosea chapter one, verse one. It says, "The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah." In the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So this verse shows us the kings of the south and the kings of the north. Just giving you the groundwork for both kingdoms, Judah and and, uh, Israel in the north. And Hosea's ministry is stretched over a 25 to 30 year period. And his ministry is directed mainly at the north, which is Israel. Look at verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. So you know things are bad when God uses the word whoredom three times in one verse, right? And so God makes this point. But take notice. This is the first thing, it says in verse, verse uh, 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea. That means this is the first thing I think he's hearing from God. The first thing. There's no breaking the ice or get to know you. It's first thing God says, I'm going to need you to go find yourself a wife who's going to cheat on you relentlessly. And and how do you just go and find a wife like that anyway? They didn't have FarmersOnly.com back then, right? I mean, how do you go and just find a wife that this is going to happen? And so there's some debate over whether she was a prostitute or whether she was just someone who cheated on him eventually. But most scholars believe that she just ended up cheating on him at some point in their marriage. But either way, it's a bad situation for Hosea, right? It's a bad situation for Hosea. So we don't know how this went down. We don't know if he just began to walk the streets and saw Gomer and said, you know, you seem kind of shady. You want to get married? Like, we're not sure how this all played out. I think the Bible might be taking out some details of, of his initial reaction. But here's the amazing thing about this passage. Here's what we know. Is that Hosea obeyed. Hosea went and obeyed. So I'm not sure what's more unbelievable that God asked this of him or that he actually did it. That he went and obeyed God with this crazy idea. So I'm doing a wedding in a couple of months. And what if during the vows I said something like this Do you take her to be your wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health? in lust and in adultery, to love and to cherish till death do you part. And then the groom looks at her in the eye and he says, I do, I do. What if someone knew beforehand they'd be cheated on, they still went through with it? This kind of love would look foolish to the world. But this is just what Hosea did. And this is what God does. It's what God does. And not only was Hosea to take a wife who would cheat on him, but they're gonna have some kids. I mean, God lets him know up front, he says, We're gonna we're gonna bring some kids into this. And you can picture his reaction. Well, God, it's a sacrifice, but I'll do it. I'll be an example to the nation. But please don't bring kids into this. Why we gotta bring kids into this mess? But God wanted even his kids. And what's going to happen there, you'll see in a moment, to be a mirror that reflects back to the nation their idolatry and adultery against God. And so you can, you can picture this um, as we read the text. So God wanted this for Hosea. The text tells us because Israel's committing idolatry, they're committing they're cheating on God. And so God wants Hosea and Gomer to be a living picture of God and Israel. So imagine how scandalous it would be for the prophet to be married to someone like this. Whenever Hosea is passing through the markets in the city, people start whispering and murmuring. And they say things like, you know, there's Hosea. Can you believe he's still married to that woman? Can you believe he married her at all? And we knew what she was like. I thought he knew, but maybe he didn't know. But now he knows and he's still committed to her. And you can imagine that some might even work up the courage to go and confront Hosea and say something like, you know, Hosea, how can a righteous man like yourself be married to someone who's so lustful and so adulterous and demeaning as someone like Gomer? And Hosea might look at them and say, well, I'm glad you asked that question because I'm beginning to wonder how a holy God can love such an adulterous nation like us. What Gomer has done to me We've done to God. And so God didn't want Hosea to just preach messages. He wanted Hosea to live out this message. And I want you to understand here that I said that I think that the Bible might be leaving out some details, and it might, I don't know. But if, if Hosea was going to argue, it might go something like this. I mean, God, I can, I've been working on this really good sermon. I could preach a really good sermon and bring them to repentance. There's another, another way to do this. And, and I got this worship leader and he just wrote this amazing song and it is powerful and we're gonna, let's do like a five-part series on repentance and we're gonna have this invitation at the end and play this powerful song and people are gonna come down front and they're gonna weep and they're gonna repent. I can just picture it, God, like we don't have to go down this road but here's what I want you to see is that I think the reason why God's asking this of Hosea is because God wants to shake the people up. Because they've grown cold, they've grown complacent, they've grown apathetic. And God knows that just preaching some messages and writing some stuff down is not going to work. He knows they've, they've gone so cold and so complacent that he wants to shake them out of their apathy. And the only way to do that is to get the people to give them a mirror and reflect back to them in real life, this is what you are doing to me as your God. And the way that you look at Hosea and think he's crazy, and you think Gomer is, is so horrible and so unfaithful and so adulterous, let that be a mirror back to you as the nation. This is the exact same thing you are doing to me as your God. So God wants their hearts stirred. He wants their hearts stirred. So Israel was guilty of idolatry, and their idolatry took on several different ways of, of, of forming. It became a national religion. They actually, this, this Canaanite god Baal, they would worship this god and they would commit cultic prostitution. So this was not them dabbling in sin or them, you know, sinning in the shadows. In dark places, this was the people of Israel sinning public, celebratory worship. It was institutional. This was the state religion. And prostitution is a part of this religion. There were idolatrous images. They would consult with spirits. There was drunkenness. There was robbery. There was murder. The leaders were all corrupt. They would even sacrifice children to the god Molech on an altar. I mean, these are, the, these are the people of God that have now stooped to these, to these levels. And they got here because of prosperity. Prosperity led to apathy, which led to idolatry. Writer Tim Chester says, these people misinterpret their prosperity. The tragic irony is that the blessing that arises from the Lord's commitment to his bride Becomes the reason for her apostasy. This is what you and I do. It's what you and I do. When things are successful, we get complacent, apathetic, and that leads into idolatry. And I think it's easy for us to read prophetic books in a detached way, isn't it? Right now I'm going through the book of Isaiah just in my own personal time. And Isaiah, it's a great book, but it is a hard read. I've got to read um, most chapters more than once. Sometimes three times and just to make sure I get it. But you read the prophetic books in the Bible and it just all sounds predictable, doesn't it? You read the prophetic books and it goes like this. The nation's been unfaithful. God raises a prophet up to, who's going to tell them they've been unfaithful. They may or may not repent and then repeat. The same thing happens over and over and over again. In fact, it reminds me of this old show that used to come on, I think it started in the mid 90s, I believe. And it was on the, a channel of VH1, I think. It was called Behind the Music. And they would show these stories of these bands or groups of their rise and, and at times their fall. Where every show seemed like the same story, just a different band. They'd rise to success. They'd party like crazy. Eventually it would all catch up to them and they'd have this big uh, crash and burn. Somebody would overdose or go to jail or go to rehab. And the band had to break up. And it was just the same story, different band. And this is kind of how it is for Israel. It's the same story, different prophet. It's just the same thing over and over again. This is why I think when it comes to Hosea, God wants to turn up the volume a little bit. God wants to turn up the heat on the people a little bit. And he wants to reach their hearts. And he knows that that. Just writing and preaching just isn't gonna cut it. They're in a place where the idols are in just so deep. And so he wants them to, he wants their hearts, he wants to reach their hearts. And I think as we read this text, we gotta remember this is us. We are we are golmer, we are guilty. And if there's one big truth I want you to walk away with this morning, it's this truth. All sin is idolatry. And all sin is adultery. Now you might hear that and think, okay, that's, that's over the line, Dave. Like that doesn't make any sense. Idolatry and adultery, those are tens. And most of the sins that I commit, they're like on the two or three level. How, how can you say that all sin is idolatry or all sin is adultery? Here's how I think we can say that. Because you and I, we can't think in terms of, of, of sin levels. It's true, there are certain sins that have greater earthly consequences. That's true. Murder, pretty big earthly consequence. But when it comes to sin from a a God perspective, all sin is the same in that it separates us from God. And so in a sense, all sin is idolatry and all sin is adultery. And so what counts as an an idol? An idol is anything that we count on as being more ultimate to us than God. If you and I find joy and meaning and fulfillment, identity in anything apart from Christ, it's an idol to us. And idolatry is at the root of every sin that you and I commit. If you don't understand this idea that idolatry is underneath every single sin that we commit externally, this is the idea I want you to get today. That 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 all sin begins with replacing God with something, and so if you're someone that you lie, that's a habit. You just lie. You're putting your reputation before God's commands, and you're replacing God with something else. And this is idolatry. I know whenever we think of idolatry, we think of statues. We think idol. We think statues. And so here's a picture that I took in New York a few years ago on a mission trip. And we go and minister in a part of uh, Queens, Jackson Heights, where there are lots of um, Hindu people, Buddhists, Muslims in that part of the city. And you can just walk into this one store. It's kind of like a CVS pharmacy type store in this one neighborhood. And they'll just have on the shelves like gods for sale, Hindu gods for sale. So whenever you and I think of, of idols, we think of this. We think of the statue. And so we, we think to ourselves, well, I don't, I don't struggle with that. I don't struggle with idols and idolatry. And yet, I'll warn you, though, that what's, what's more dangerous? Is it, is it obvious idolatry or is it subtle idolatry? You and I tend to fall for a subtle idolatry. And underneath all the sins that we commit externally, there is an idolatry issue, an idolatry problem. And if, if all sin is idolatry, we can also say that all sin is adultery. It's true. Because when you and I sin, we are replacing God with something. We are cheating on him. And so all sin is also a spiritual form of adultery. So God has given us human relationships to teach us about himself. We talked about this in the Imago Day series. That God's given us marriage to show a picture of his relationship to the church, and that sounds all warm and fuzzy and so great, this is the other side of that coin. That when God wants to let the people know that they've turned their back on him, he uses the metaphor of adultery. He uses the picture of adultery. You and I understand adultery. We can understand it, we can grab a hold of it. Yeah, that's that's tough. In fact, I can't, think of a greater violation of a human relationship than adultery. There's no emotional pain worse than this. There's, I think most would prefer a husband or wife to maybe die suddenly than just to, than to commit adultery against them. And so one of my hopes for this series and also for today is that you would understand this that we'd understand our sin at a deeper level. We would grab a hold of our sin at a deeper understanding. You know, during uh, Impact, we train our teenagers, we, we train them this definition of what sin is. Do I have some high schoolers in here this morning? Are they over here, some of them? All right, so you guys want to help me with this real fast? I don't want to embarrass you. You guys okay with this? But we say, sin is anything you... Y'all sound so excited. (laughs) Thanks. We brainwash them at the Outback. That's how they know these kind of things. So we we teach them, you know, sin is anything you think, say, or do that displeases God. And and that's great for a little kid definition. I think it's, 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 they can grasp that idea. But through Hosea, God does more than define sin. God gives them a powerful picture of what sin is. And so here's the adult definition of sin. The adult definition of sin is simply sin is idolatry and it's adultery. Can you imagine if we taught that at Impact with little kids? I mean, what did you learn at to Impact today? Oh, well, they told me I was an idolater and an adulterer. <laughs> Mommy, what's an adulterer? Right? Like, but that's that's a an image now of what. Sin is. It's not just a definition, it's an image, it's a description of what sin really is. And so, if we learn anything in Hosea, it should be that sin is not just to violate a law, but it's to violate a relationship. We don't just break his law, we break his heart. And so, we want you to grab a hold of a deeper understanding of what sin is in this series. Look at verse 4. It says, And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. I can't go into all the historical background of this part of the passage, but um, this is Hosea and Gomer's firstborn son. And God says, We're not just going to make the marriage an example. We're going to make the family, the whole family, even the kids, an example to prophetically speak into the nation and their idolatry. And so in that day, names meant something. I mean, names mean something today, but names were a big deal back then. They were prophetic. So God's saying he's going to punish Israel for a previous sin their leaders committed. And I can't get into that story. I don't have time for that right now. But when the leaders disobey, the people suffer. And here they're going to suffer generations later. Look at verse 6. It says she conceived again and bore a daughter and the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Now some believe this the second person, the second daughter was not actually Hosea's child we're not sure about that but some scholars believe that now this name no mercy that's a great name for a guy but not for a girl i just picture a big wrestler when i think of that name but most of us think of most of us think of god's love as just kind and gracious and tender but what god's saying to israel is that No, my love is at times it can be tough. And I might actually get angry about sin sometimes, and at times his patience runs out, and he brings justice. And so he's proclaiming that in this in verse 6. But then look at the other side of this, verse 7. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. So Verse 6 is about Israel. Verse 7, remember, is about Judah. So, what is God doing? Remember, Hosea's ministry is mainly directed at Israel, the northern kingdom, but now he brings up the south, Judah. You understand what's happening in this passage? God says about Judah, He says, I'm going to have mercy on Judah. Why? Because they're obeying me. Israel's not, they get no mercy. So this is a a classic case of sibling comparison. This is God saying, Israel, why can't you be like your brother, Judah? They're obeying me, they're following me, and I'm going to show them mercy. But to Israel, I will no longer show mercy. Look at verse 8. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son... And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So if you want to name your kid a biblical name, don't go to the book of Hosea for the name that you choose. But, you know, names meant something in that day. In fact, when I was in, uh, when I was in high school, I went to this Private Christian high school, and we had a Bible class. And there was this. Uh, our teacher's name was uh, Mr. Vanderdecker. He was a good, nice, strong Dutch last name, and he um, he was a godly man. I had a lot of respect for him. But he had this. He insisted on naming his kids biblical names, but not like David or Samuel, um, like the ones that were that sounded kind of odd. So he named his first child, he named his first child, Josiah Theophilus Vanderdecker. And then his second child, he named him Jotham, who's actually in this text, Jotham Titus Vanderdecker. And as, you know, teens, we like to make fun of things. And so one day, we're taking prayer requests before class, and one of my friends, he says, I've got a prayer request, um, my grandmother has a case of Jotham Titus. And of course, that didn't go over too well, right? But the thing with names is names mean something. Names mean something. And names meant a lot more back then in, the, in, in biblical times. So these names, what's God doing with these names? This, this personalized, uh, this name here, uh, not my people, Another way to say it would be, you know, not my son. Something, this may not actually be his son. Maybe someone else's son. So you're introducing this son to people and you're like, this is not my son. It's like, okay, too much information. But, no, I mean, that's his name, not my son. But it's meant to be a picture to the people. And what God, you can imagine um, the stir. That it would create every every time these kids' names are announced, the stir it would create in the streets. It's not just so that people make fun of little kids, but it's it's so that um, they'd be reminded of how far they have fallen as the people of God. And so we read the we've read the story of Hosea and Gomer, but I want you to now see this in video form. So um, Irving Bible Church several years ago they put together a six part video deal you're going to see throughout this series. And if we're to retell this story in modern form, this is what it might look like. So let's watch this video. can't watch that and not feel something. It's impossible. It feels like a punch to the gut when you watch something like that. And this is what God wanted for his people. He wanted them to look at Hosea and his relationship to Gomer. He wanted them to feel something. Feel the weight of what they had done to him. It's especially hard to watch that whenever we've said things like, you know, we're like Gomer, or all sin is idolatry and all sin is adultery. And so we do want us all to have a new understanding of what sin really is. But we also want to give you a new understanding of his mercy and his grace. So look quickly at verse 10. It says, this is looking at the future hope of Israel. It says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. In verse one of chapter two, "Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy." All of these verses are a reminder of Israel's future hope, and they're a reminder that salvation is always by grace. You see, God stood at the altar with Israel, knowing that they would cheat on him. And he still said, I do. God still said, I do. He does the same thing for you and me. He knows we're unfaithful, and he's still faithful. And if you think that you're beyond redemption, the book of Hosea will speak powerfully into your life, that as, as crazy into sin as the people of God became, they were never out of God's reach. They were never beyond redemption. And so this is true of us as well. You see in these last few verses that God, he can't help but show his mercy. He can't help but show his foolish love. His mercy will not quit. It is relentless. And so, yes, I think we have to see how sinful we really are. But there's another side to the equation. You might say it like this. A deep view of our sin leads to a deeper view of God's mercy. You see, his mercy only becomes mercy when it's set against the backdrop of our sin. And so a deep view of our sin leads to a deeper view of God's mercy for us. And so as we study the book of Hosea, we really hope that you see God's love in a new and a fresh light in this book. We hope that you see his heartbreak about sin, that it would stir heartbreak in us about sin... We hope that you see his passion for his people. And that he give you a passion for God. Has your heart grown cold in your relationship with Jesus? Has it grown complacent? You see, God wants more than just our morality. He wants more than just knowledge. He wants more than just good behavior. He wants our hearts. And this is what the book of Hosea is all about. God, we thank you that you're a God who pursues us and chases after us. We thank you that you're a God that always is willing to show mercy, always willing to show grace. We thank you for how we're going to learn this through Hosea. We pray for all of us that you would, um, if we're dealing with apathy and complacency, that you would turn our hearts towards you with a passion, the same passion that you have for us, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.